You know, sometimes it's just good to get lost in a song. To get lost in the melody, to get lost in the worship, to get lost in his presence. To get lost into a place that you have trouble getting out of. I don't know if any of us have a song like that. My problem is I have plenty of those. (laughs) That I just get lost in worship. I don't know how to respond while I'm in the midst of that song because the Lord is saying something so profound as we lift our worship and our praise to him. And so I am grateful uh, to be standing in front of you today Uh, grateful for the Lord's presence that brings us all here. You know, uh, relationships are the network for life. And the only way we get anywhere in any place, fast or slow, is through the beauty of relationships. This Sunday is, was launched by a set of relationships I had the opportunity to meet Scott Stevenson some probably seven years ago at this point at one of our Young Life galas and events. And uh, that one chance meeting began a relationship. So every two, three times a year, we would sit and we would have lunch. And so having lunch was nothing abnormal for us. I like to eat, so that's not abnormal. Any invitation for lunch is most of the time welcomed by me anyway. But this lunch was different. It happened on the heels of all of the racial unrest that we had had in our country from uh, George Floyd to the onslaught of what we had known and heard and experienced around Black Lives Matter. And this particular lunch date uh, began with a series of questions. I remember that lunch like it was yesterday because it was, it was so different and out of, um, out of our normal uh, realm of meeting. We normally had a bunch of jokes. You could never tell who... Uh, what our line of work was. We were both comedians probably trying to figure out who we could make laugh the most. But this lunch was different. There wasn't a lot of laughing and there wasn't a lot of joking. There were uh, some heavy hearts and some serious questions. And that really began a conversation that actually changed the way that we all meet. As Jason talked about, it's good friction and good trouble for a reason, but that friction and trouble started in my relationship with Scott. It, came, it started uh, when he asked some serious questions about what we were experiencing or what we were count, encountering and actually asking me how I felt and came to the table with a lot more questions that he had answers. And those questions began more questions, uh, which spawned some questions on my end to him. And it became something uh, that transformed the way we related. Jason and I have known each other for eons, but this was the situation that put us all at the same table, meeting together, 
uh, one month at a time to consider what the Lord was asking us to do. And I am the idea man and the strategy man. So I came to the table with a grand plan on how we would continue to make this a larger, grander situation where people and pastors from all over the city would gather to talk about justice and what the Lord would have us to do. And somehow, Jason, as you know, can do, um, began to slow us down a little bit and said, what if it actually began with four or five of us considering what the Lord would ask us to do in the context of getting to know one another? And that has taken us from month to month to month to month to another month asking questions and encountering each other in different ways, talking about our backgrounds and our relationships and our encounters when it came to race and justice and even reshaping our perspectives on what we saw and also what we had missed. But we did figure out some things, but we still have a lot left to figure out, which is why and how you are are involved today. See, I actually am looking for some help. I'm trying to figure out, can someone or anyone help me define justice? See, everyone comes in with some sort of pre-existing notion of what justice is. And most of the time, it comes comes in a non-matching fashion. It becomes like the socks that start out in the washer and somehow either never make the dryer. And so when you take stuff out of the dryer, you have a pair, a pair of now mismatched socks. Our definitions of justice really become the same. They don't actually match. They went into the wash the same way, but they never came out of the dryer the same. So something gets lost. And today I'm hoping that we can gain some insight on how the Lord sees justice. But just to show you how many different definitions of justice people have, I'm going to give you a few, a one person, a couple of people that you might know and some names you've heard of and others that you may have not. Cornell West says, never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. William Gaddis has a different perspective. He says, justice You get justice in the next world. In this world, you have the law. Isaac Asimov says this, people who don't expect justice don't have to suffer disappointment. And so you look in those three different, very different definitions of justice, none of them actually really match. They go from One trying to protect himself so that he's not disappointed by what he doesn't find. The other one says you can't actually have it because justice is, you don't get justice in this life. It's you get the law and justice is something to come. You don't get that right now. And Cornel West who says justice is what love looks like in public. Those are three very different understandings of justice. But we're going to make our way to a working definition of justice this morning. But on our way to that, we are going to figure out how our current system of law exacts justice. 
Anybody in the room who is attached to law is a practicing attorney, sits somewhere uh, in, in a courtroom, or, or is even studying law at this point, understands one thing, that your rules and the laws that we live by emanate, they come from one place. They come from the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court sits on their thrones and they hear cases. And as they hear cases and as they wrestle with information, they come up with a verdict that gets passed down to each of us. Some of us, it happens to us haphazardly. Some of us, it happens intentionally because if you're a lawyer, you're now bound by the things that the Supreme Court hands to you. But as you practice, you wrestle with how that plays itself out in real life and practice. But at the end of the day, if you want to know who sets justice and how justice is determined, it's very simple. Justice is exactly what the judge says it is. If the judge doesn't say it, it's not justice. If the judge doesn't decree it, it's not law. So just like we understand that from our, uh, our, our judicial system, if we sit in here and we name the name of Jesus Christ, how do we find out what justice is and what it's to become? I would contend that the definition we have from justice has to come from the just judge. We know that the judge is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the three of them talk to themselves and decide what justice is. And when Jesus saved us, he also began to determine what justice looked like for us. And so he begins to talk to us about justice. If you want to know, do you want to know what he says about justice? I'm actually glad you asked that question. He says in a few different places, here's what he says in Proverbs 31 verses 8 and 9. He says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth and judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. He says something else in Jeremiah 22 and 3, thus saith the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed the innocent blood in this place. As if that weren't enough, in Psalm 146, verses 7 through 9, he says, Who executes justice for the oppressed? Who gives food to the hungry? The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those whose heads are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourner, and he upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. One of the things that will become helpful for us here today is understanding how justice and righteousness are defined in context in the scripture and the time it was written. So these passages, Old Testament, right, uh, come in Hebrew. And Hebrew has uh, a couple of meanings for justice. One is mishpat. It is restorative justice, and it seeks out justice for the vulnerable. 
So in other words, the justice that God talks about under Mitzpah is looking for the vulnerable and figuring out how to make injustice right. But what does he say in the last passage? He talks about, but the way of the wicked he'll bring to ruin. When we think about wicked, we think about people who just do bad things. We say this person is wicked because of what he's done, because of the, 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 uh, the old lady he stole her purse, or for the number of murders they committed, or the, the, the shrewdness of a business transaction. We say that person is wicked. But the Old Testament scripture defines wicked as rasha, which is guilty or in the wrong for ignoring the dignity in the image of God. Well, we have to understand this morning that justice is not a race, it's not a gender, it's not an economic, nor is it a societal issue. It is a kingdom issue. That God has a lot to say about justice, and he stands up plenty for those who were being treated unjustly. In fact, truth be told, he stood up for us as Satan tried to take our lives away and lead us on a path that was opposite of him. And because he wanted to make the injustice just, Jesus gives his own life to make us righteous. And so in some ways in this process of justice, what we have to understand is this, that justice is a radical selfless way of life. It is not a one-time act. It is not just something that a cause that we get involved in for the moment. But justice is radically giving our life away every day, every moment, every minute every second, every hour under the direction of the Lord. But that's great to understand how the Lord sees justice, right? If we look throughout the course of life and time, because people have different definitions of justice, people have taken justice and used it the wrong way. Sometimes people have used justice to level the playing field only to take what they have now, position and power, and to push people down when they were just down a moment ago, right? So how does this play out in human terms? There is a passage of Scripture I want to read to you from, uh, coming from Luke 18, verses 18 through 23. Once a religious leader asked Jesus this question, Good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question... You know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely and honor your father and your mother. Now, the man's response to this is absolutely astounding because the man replied, I've obeyed all of these commandments since I was young. When Jesus heard his answer, he said, there is one thing you still lack, one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. 
But when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. There are so many ways that you can actually see this passage merely being about the man's money. It's interesting. We don't know a whole lot about this rich young ruler, but we do know that three of the four gospel writers thought it important enough to include him in the gospel narrative. They all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three say he would highlight that he was rich. But only Matthew tells us of his age and says that he was young. And Luke alone is the only one who tells us that he was a ruler. So though we don't know this man's name, we don't know where he lived, we don't know how he grew up, we have some assumptions that we can safely make based on the text. Let's start with his age, that he was young. That whatever he had done early in his life had positioned him to be wealthy. We don't know whether he inherited it or whether he built it. We just know that he was a young guy who happened to be rich beyond reason. How do we know that? The the scripture text tells us in other places when it adds very rich, that's kind of like lotto rich. Right? It says he's very, he was very rich. But it also says that he was a ruler. And so that he had authority. Perhaps he was involved in the Sanhedrin. Perhaps he himself kept those laws so well because he had been involved in helping them enforce them from the Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus, this rich young man comes to Jesus with a very simple question. It's not deep, it's not um, intuitive. He says, I really want to know what must I do to have eternal life. He starts out with good teacher. And Jesus looks at him and, and responds first by saying, Why do you call me good? There's only one good but the Father, helping him understand that even his question was displaced from the place it should have been. It should have been attached to to God the Father, but he's now even subjected Jesus to being just a good teacher, which means if you're a good teacher, you're really good at what you say. You're very convincing and you're very compelling, right? But I can actually take it or leave it if you're only a good teacher. It's different when I see you as Lord and Savior. He said, but to answer your question, he just, just to play along with you and answer your question, I'm going to tell you what you actually should do. He said, you know, you know the commandments. You know the things that you shouldn't do. You, you know, you don't commit adultery. Not even sure if he was old enough for that. Do not murder. Do not steal. Don't bear false witness. In other words, don't lie on somebody else. And honor your father and your mother. Now, to stand in the presence of Jesus and to say, I've done all of these things since I was a little kid, either is one of two things. You have a lot of audacity or it's actually the truth. And you see in the text, Jesus never responds to that. He never comes back and says, you didn't know, you don't actually do that. I can tell you when you disobeyed your father and your mother. I figured out when you dishonored them. 
And no, you probably haven't committed adultery, but I do know when you last lied on someone else to kind of get ahead in your career. Jesus never touches that. He never acknowledges it, and he never combats it. But he says to him, there's one thing that you're lacking. Just one thing? That would sound pretty easy. Out of all the things we've just talked about, out of all the commandments you've just given, out of all the ways that I've kept them since I was a boy, you mean I lack one thing? You mean I figured out how to get involved uh, in the Bowery Mission because it helps the homeless, or I figured out how to have some interesting conversations with someone who doesn't look like me, and those, and those times were great. You mean there's still one thing I lack? Like, I donate uh, to the cause that you put on my heart, and I consistently do that. You mean there's still something I'm lacking after all of that? You mean out of everything that you've told me to do that I've actually done, you mean I'm still lacking something? And Jesus says, yes, you're lacking one thing. He says, take all your possessions. Sell them. Give them to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. And the young man's response is curious to me. Why is it curious? Because he has one thing that he's lacking. Out of many things, Jesus says, there you are lacking one thing. But he was unwilling to take the next step. Jesus was asking him to do something radically different, to step away and step out of what his current comfort zone was and take his next step to follow Jesus a little bit harder, to to come out of your comfort zone a little bit more, to make yourself uncomfortable in a way that you would rather not. One thing, and he was unwilling to take the next step. I wonder for us this morning how many things that the Lord Jesus has asked us to do, and we've done them, but have been unwilling to take the next step. To take the next step of involvement or engagement, the next step in giving, The next step in how you spend your time. The next step in having some uncomfortable conversations that you want to have but you're fearful fearful to have and so you don't have them. He said, are you willing to take the next step? And the young man goes away, walks away, the scripture says, with his head down and very sad, for he was very rich. See, for him to take the next step and sell his possessions and give it to the poor, were not just about his possessions, 
because the possessions are easy because he could recruit them if he was a businessman. He could figure out how to make that money all over again. But attached to his possessions were his status and his influence. His wealth afforded him some things that he wouldn't be able to get without his wealth. And if he gave his wealth away, would his status and his influence go away with it? Also, his power. He had a certain amount of power because of his wealth. He was able to move things and move people because of his wealth. And if he gave up his wealth, that actually would buy influence. Does he have any power left? Or is community leadership? Who wants to listen to someone who is broke? So now I don't have a voice as a leader in the community because now I have nothing. So because I have nothing, my voice gets lost in the rest of all the voiceless people. And that is just a little bit too much for me to take. You know, the young man probably came from, some, from a wealthy family. And what would it look like if he gave up all the wealth that his family had amassed if he were to take those things and sell them and turn it over to the poor? See, he walked away sad because he wasn't willing to take the, last, the next step. And the reason he wasn't willing to take the next step because he could not see what he was losing for the potential of what he might gain. He was so concerned about what he was losing, the prestige, the power, the community leadership, his family influence. He could not see that by giving those things up that there was more for him to come. He had no idea if the Lord would not have replaced his wealth out of his obedience in his giving. He was so short-sighted, so blinded, and so scared that he wouldn't take the next step. And so the only step he could take was to walk away because even walking away provided comfort that he would not have if he had stayed and done what Jesus had asked him to do. It was more comfortable for him to walk away sad than to turn around and to do the thing, the one thing that Jesus asked him to do. You see, justice is not an act or an activity. Justice is a lifestyle. Justice is something we should engage in every day because the Father engages in that same thing. He thinks highly on those who take care of the poor and the widow and the orphan. But not just in the financial stewardship of those things, but in the activity of engaging yourself in a way that communicates his love and his goodness to people who might not know it unless you got involved and got engaged. So the next step may not be for you to sell everything you have. But the next step might mean that you give away some of what you have so you get involved in something that you would not normally be involved in. 
You might get involved in a, in a, in a conversation or a civic group that helps level the playing field in a way that you never imagined. Or you, you get involved uh, uh, with the prison system where you see hundreds upon hundreds on thousands of people who are being incarcerated for the wrong reason. If you look at the Justice Project and you see how many people are being let off the hook because they were, they were wrongfully imprisoned in the first place, the Lord may ask you to lift your voice in your workplace and rally some people around a specific mission. It doesn't mean you have to give up everything unless the Lord is asking you to do that. And for some of us, he might ask that question. But for all of us, he's asking us to get involved in what it looks like to bring justice. I'll close this way. We're all familiar with uh, the Last Supper. And we're all familiar with, with the teaching that Jesus did. It's all before uh, the lies are exposed, before Judas is, is told, we know what you're going to do. Um, there came a foot washing first. Anybody remember the foot washing? In the foot washing, the precarious thing about the foot washing was, is when they went in to that place to sit down for that meal, there was supposed to be someone assigned to wash their feet when they came in. But because there was no one there to wash their feet, Jesus says, someone has to do it, so I'll do it. It's no different than what he did when he died on the cross for us. Somebody had to do it, so he decided, I'll do it. Someone had to wash their feet. Jesus says, I'll wash their feet. I don't know what condition their feet are in. They're dusty. We know that to be certain. They're dirty. We know that to be pretty certain too. Or there would be no need to wash feet if they weren't dirty. We don't know what else they could have stepped in as they walked along the way. I'm sure there are several animals. And I'm sure they didn't avoid everything that they should have missed as they walked along the way. So when they got in there, their feet smelled pretty bad. But the fact that nobody was on their post didn't allow and didn't prevent the task from being done. Jesus saw that it wasn't being done and that the task was undone. And so he's the one who decided that he was going to get down and wash their, his disciples' feet, which became an example that we talk about all the time. It's an example of not only how Jesus served, but how we should serve. How you take the next step and wash your brother and sister's feet is pretty important, and I'll close this way. Micah 6, 8 gives us the best definition for justice. He says, oh, people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires. Not that it was optional. Not that it was a question. Not that you could opt in or out. He said, this is what he requires. To do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You know, we often, we, 
We've we've been around when the question has been asked, what's the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus says it very simply. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is as equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all of the demands, demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. We have figured out how to love ourselves, how to take care of ourselves, how to treat ourselves. We go uh, to the hairdresser. We go to barber shops. We go to gyms. We treat ourselves, well, to either junk food or healthy food, no matter how you consider that a treat, that's up to you. But we have figured out how to treat ourselves. And Jesus says, you treat your neighbor the way you love and treat you. Are you willing to take the next step? I did not say this in the first service, actually, because I forgot. (laughs) So I remembered this time. The one thing I forgot to say is as you look forward to taking the next step, understand that there will continue to be more questions than you have answers for. It's not something that you figure out right now and you never have to revisit the conversation again. It is a process that you will continue to walk through and journey through, not for the next year or not for the next few years, but until we get In front of the throne of Jesus, we are always going to have questions about what it means to do justice. But his question to us is, are you willing to take the next step? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've never, you haven't brought us this far to leave us. That you've brought us to a place of questioning and understanding And seeing justice the way you see it. But Father, now we ask, as you have given us now eyes to see and ears to hear and heart to receive your truth. That you would give us the courage to take the next step. So that we can be practitioners of the justice that you define. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.